Hello and welcome to Money Beat Week. This is Steve Russolillo with Eric Holm and Maureen Farrell. Another big day, big week in the markets. Uh, Wall Street is on a wild ride with the Dow recovering significantly from last week's sell-off and a surprise bidder for Reebok putting the shoemaker in play. All that after this. Life's full of little victories, like beating your personal best 5K time, hitting platinum in hotel and airline points, or scoring a reservation at that hot new restaurant. And everyone is worth celebrating with a victory lap in your Cadillac, which is running smoothly thanks to the Cadillac Certified Service Experts. Now, here's something new to celebrate. Cadillac has just received the J.D. Power Award for highest in customer satisfaction with dealer service among luxury brands. So when it comes to dealer service, there's Cadillac and there's everyone else. For a limited time, get a $100 mail-in rebate debit card and a set of four select brand name tires. See participating U.S. Cadillac dealer for eligible tire brands and details. Rebate form must be postmarked by 11-30-14. Allow 68 weeks for delivery of debit card. Offer ends 10-31-14. For J.D. Power award information, go to JDPower.com. So, Maureen, Eric, it has been quite a, a ride in the markets, and especially over the last few days, a big, big rebound. It's been crazy. It, uh, unbelievable. Like, I mean, who would have thought last Friday that we would be oh, – actually, no. Someone did – I think we have a clip. Let's say Friday's rally continues, though. I mean, we're then talking about this in the context of, oh, that's just another pullback that we all made a huge, big deal about that really, at the end well, of the day, it's just a uh, Again, blip. I think – Thank you, thank you, thank you. Quite have the a, profit. <laughs> to have a little victory lap there. That was Paul Vigna trying to uh, to cut you off and tell you why you were being ridiculous. And uh, he's not here to... Uh, to defend to, himself. Yeah, but, yeah. But or to eat was. his humble pie. Exactly. <laughs> But let's talk about it, though. I mean, seriously, you've had a market here that has now rebounded significantly off the lows. Uh, Really, the all-time highs are now back in focus. The the Dow and S&P are about 2%, 3% away from their all-time highs last month. Uh, It's almost been astounding, in in a way, how quickly things have turned positive. And it's a repeat of the the pattern that we keep seeing over and over and over again, right? There's this uh, persistent mentality of... Of buying the dips. And every time that the dip happens, people say, well, I don't know. The bears like Paul are like, this is it. It's I wasn't here last week, but they're like, it's finally happening. That There's pretty much, that's that's pretty much what you said. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was guessing. And then it seems like the rest of us are like, this market just wants to go up. Yeah. And that's what it really just seems That is the, like. the common cliche and, that yes, everyone exactly. uses. But it, it, there's a certain hint of truth to it, too. And how long has it been since we've actually had a 10% decline so in the, the Dow? Three years. Exactly three years for the Dow and SP 500. The last time that they had a big pullback of at least 10% was the summer of 2011 when you had the, the debt downgrade in Europe's debt crisis and everything unfolding. And and uh, actually, both the, the Dow and SB both came very close to bear markets at that time, almost fell 20% before bouncing back in early October of 2011 and then just continuing higher. So here, the, the worry was, just a few weeks ago, the worry was about slowing growth around the world, was about deflation happening in, in, in Europe, as well as possibly some deflationary pressures here in the U.S. And then just also just general concern about what's going to happen when the Fed 
ends its, its, its stimulus program, its QE, quantitative easing. And so that's something that Paul has been harping on for, for weeks now. And, and it, it, he's right in the sense that every time the, the, the Fed ends QE, whether it was QE1 or QE2, there was a big pullback in the market. Stocks dropped 15% or so um, each time. And then, you know, they started QE3. Uh, what was it? It was... 2012, September 2012 is when they started QE3. Um, and then essentially the market has just been off to the races ever since. So it's a real concern now at this point with the Fed now. It, there's going to be a, a Fed meeting next week. Uh, and the Fed is expected to end its its QE program, officially end it. And so that will then put the, the time, you know, everyone will then start focusing about interest rates and when is the Fed going to have its first rate increase. And so uh, there is certainly a lot of skepticism about what happens when the Fed pulls back on stimulus. And yet the, 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 those worries that you described that were bringing stocks down last week, they didn't go away. They didn't miraculously – there wasn't some miracle that, that solved all of those problems. Right. So, there's so been, what's happened this week? So there's been a weird dynamic that's happening. One, you've had earnings season, which mm-hmm. by and large has been good for – it's been a good earnings season and it's been good for markets. Now, there's a, a big caveat in that because a lot of the big blue chip companies have really, really struggled. Right. Um, the companies in the Dow – In the Dow. Haven't by and large been fantastic. Right, right. And so just this week you had IBM and Coke put out numbers that were really, really pretty bad. Um, you've had – you know, Walmart hasn't had um, – growth in their U.S. same-store sales since 2012. GE hasn't had their stock price go back above 30 since the financial crisis. Um, GE is also down about 10% this year alone. It makes it the third or, fourth, third or fourth worst performing component in the Dow. So you have a lot of these big blue-chip, well-known, well-established multinational companies that are really, really struggling now. But on the flip side of that, though, is that there are all the other companies are pretty much making up for their struggles and they're doing pretty well. So earnings season is still shaping up to be pretty good. Um, you know, you're looking at about 5 6% growth, uh, which, yeah, and sales growth is about 2 to 3%. So, you know, not great by any stretch of imagination, but not negative and not, not terrible either. So um, that has been good enough to make investors feel Again, good enough about the markets and to think that the, the pullback that we saw in early October was just a really good buying opportunity. Well, I thought the, uh, the, the post that we, you did um, yesterday about the Dow and the S&P sort of separating themselves was yeah. kind of interesting. So that's also another thing is the Dow is essentially flat for, about the, year, for, for the year now, um, while the S&P is up about 5 6%. That is a huge, huge gap, and we went back and it's, looked. It's and a very rare gap. I, very I, rare I myself gap. am generally skeptical about the the Dow, but you, you, you've repeatedly assured me that you know, <laughs> they, they don't separate all that much, all that often. And the, the long run average, by and large, is they 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 tend to move together. There and when some, I say skeptical, I'm skeptical. I'm skeptical of measuring the performance of the stock market in general. Right, thirty stocks, and uh, th- that is a fair criticism. That's a criticism that, that has been around for decades sure, now. Sure. Um, and you mean so, I didn't think that up? <laughs> Totally fair, but what's particularly interesting, though, is and actually our colleague Jason Zweig has done some really good pieces on this. But th- there could be some year-to-year volatility, but by and large, they tend to have the same performance, right. even though the Dow is only thirty stocks and the S and P is five hundred stocks. So they tend to track each other. But the caveat with that is this year they're not really tracking each other at all. The Dow is about flat. The S and P is up about six percent. They tell two totally different stories. If you're a fund manager talking to a client, right. you're saying it, it's a great year for the market. Mm-hmm. The S and P is up six percent. It'll probably go up a little bit more and end the year about eight, nine, ten percent. That's a good year. 
But then, you know, the client could come back and say, but wait a minute, the Dow is flat. And the Russell, the Russell 2000 is down like 6% and was down 10%. So, and what about the NASDAQ? And Where the NASDAQ is, is also sort of in line with the S&P, about okay. up 6 7% or so. Um, depending on where things shake out today. But, you know, it's weirdly, though, with the Russell, this is the small caps. They're the ones that are least exposed to any concerns you might have about Europe or Asia. Right, right. The The thing with them is they are they a lot of the momentum stocks are right. in the small cap Russell 2000. And so you get these big swings, big gains and then big losses. And those moves and are they seem to be driven bigger. by sentiment as well. Exactly. So it, it, it's it's in that sense, it's been a really strange year. And so we went back and looked at the numbers. and There's only been two other times where the S&P's gain has more than doubled the Dow's gain. And so that's the situation that we're in now. So uh, only twice since 1928 has that happened. So it's 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 really a strange period that, that we're in right now. And Steve, in those time periods, I mean, were there any takeaways from them? I mean, were they just kind of random years or were, did you see it at a certain, you know, when the market was moving a certain way ultimately? So the last time, I believe, was 2005. And, um, you know, any real takeaway from that? I mean, not really. The market did okay, and it did well in 2006. It obviously, it, it peaked in 2007. So, um, but yeah, it, it seemed like most of them, the, the couple others that that we looked at, I mean, just really just anom- anomalies in, in the in the grand sense. And grand remind me, I think I've so. looked at this chart as well. But were there years where the Dow was? One direction in the S&P yeah. was so there was also yeah. two or three years along the same lines where the Dow was down one year and the S and P was up and right. vice versa. So, but I, again, I think the big takeaway with that is that it, this doesn't usually happen. And right. So it's it's making this year, despite even, my skepticism about measuring the right, economy right. or the market by thirty yeah. companies, it's it yeah. generally holds up. So. So where do we go from here now? I wish we had Paul Vigna here to... to, to <laughs> I'll tell you where we go. <laughs> <laughs> right ba- in the toilet. <laughs> to, to balance me out here. But, uh, you know, it's... A lot of people are saying... A lot of people pointing to... And, and Steve Grosser actually talks about this all the time. Mm-hmm. The fact that the market has had these pullbacks right before earnings season. It's now happened three or four times in a row. Then earnings season starts and you tend to see a bottom and the markets rebound and rally. So it's a... Um, it's a pattern that has now repeated over and over and over again. At some time, it won't repeat and it won't keep going. And but Paul would also say, if he were here, <laughs> that um, that the the rally on earnings might be um, not based on reality. That that right. it's not based on on improving underlying earnings, and that it's engineered. And there's not enough capex. It's all uh, buybacks. It's all buybacks. Would be Paul's mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> spin off. So Bye. you know, it's it's going to be really interesting uh, to see what happens with the Fed meeting next week. Uh, it's a two day meeting, Tuesday, Wednesday, um, and you know what they say about the end of QE. You know, James. Uh, James Bullard, the uh, the St. Louis Fed president, really opened up a can of worms last week when he started talking about QE4 as a possibility. And a lot of people are pointing to that as that was the reason why the market had such a sharp rebound and such a sharp rally. And so if that's the but case – But did anyone really believe that that's – I mean there, that, that sort of came out of nowhere and there haven't been a rush of uh, pronouncements from – other people at the Fed to right. So to there say, was one other Fed official, John Williams, over at, at, at uh, in San Francisco, who said, uh, I believe his first name is John. His last name is Williams. The the, the Fed president in San Francisco who said um, also that QE another QE could be a possibility or extending QE could be right. A possibility. No, he just said, why don't so, we just hold off till December? Right. 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 That's Wh- right. Which that's right. I mean, they're only buying what five billion this this month anyway, billion, or f- yeah. it's fifteen. Yeah, right. Yeah. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I mean. 
they they've essentially tapered it all the way, almost all the way right, off, anyway. Right. So. And, and the real the expectation. I mean, you talk to anybody in the market, and people think that they are going to actually end this QE program th- th- this week. Right. People would be surprised if they didn't. But at the same time, though, if you just look at the market timing aspect of things, like things did really turn around once Bullard mentioned QE four, and so. If there's this, you know, sense I mean, that maybe people again are- to channel Paul, <laughs> you don't have to bring up QE4 to have learned the lesson over the last several years that the Fed is really willing to step in if needed, mm-hmm. right? Uh, if if they feel they're needed, yeah, right. So, so, so I, I I guess I would say that um, the market may may have gone up on that, but that there there wasn't a some amazing new pronouncement in that statement. Right, really. right, right. Yeah. And so, Steve, last week you were, you were right on. Give, <laughs> give us two predictions. What does the Fed do? More predictions. All right. <laughs> and what does the market do right, in response two, to that? Two predictions here. The Fed ends QE. Uh, I think that they include some type of language or something more than, they, uh, more than, they, than they've done in the past with regard to um, their interest rate policy, what they're going to, you know, when they could potentially raise rates, what would lead them to raise rates. I think just a little bit more clarity along those lines is something that they're going to have to do now with QE eventually over. So call it forward guidance, call it whatever you want, but a little bit more clarity as to what's next. So that's the first one. And then the second one is uh, the, 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 the rebound happened a lot quicker and a lot sharper than than I expected and then most people anticipated. So I'll say that from here, the market will end higher, end the year higher. I just don't know sort of what trajectory it's going to be. Is there going to be another big pullback? Is there going to be a, a, a bigger rally and then a pullback? I mean, I don't know. That, and I think that's a fool's game trying to predict that. But I would say end no. By market. And it's probably a Do fool's game trying to predict <laughs> the market higher at the end of this year too. But yeah. Do you mean the Dow? <laughs> yes, the Dow will be in positive territory. The S and P five hundred will be in positive territory as well. All right, adjust your portfolios exactly. <laughs> so let's shift gears a little bit, uh, Maureen. We're going to go to to this story that you've been working on. This is just a, a, a fantastic story. Uh, and congratulations on the you. scoop, by the way. Thank yeah. you. Big scoop. Everyone had to cite you. <laughs> Tell the, us about the, it. This was huge. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that, that, thanks, Tori. <laughs> thanks for the applause. That's our producer, Tori, over there. Well done. Well done. <laughs> <laughs> so we heard um, – so basically we found out that there a buyer emerged for Reebok. Reebok's been owned by Adidas since 2005. Adidas swooped in back then, purchased the company for about $3.8 billion. We found out about this group of buyers led by a – Malaysian-born billionaire, and it also seems to be backed by the um, funds in Abu Dhabi, the sovereign wealth funds there. They came in with a bid that's about 1.7 billion euros, 2.2 billion U.S. dollars to buy Reebok back, take it back, take it, bring it back to the U.S. It's headquartered in Canton, Massachusetts. Adidas is based in Germany. It's really, by all accounts, has floundered under. Adidas's care, the Reebok brand. We saw back in 2005, it had a decent market share in the U.S. It had about six or so percent of U.S. sneaker sales. Now it has about 1.8 percent. All these brand, all these other shoe brands have far eclipsed it by now. So these buyers think that they can try to get management to run it, take it back, make it independent, take it out of the public markets, and reinvigorate the brand. 
Now, the price that you said that they, they're willing to pay and what they paid previously, that's not quite apples to apples, right? Because they did spin some things off in the meantime, is that exactly. right? Exactly. Sold, they sold things, got rid of some pieces. I mean, they sold the Greg Norman brand. It wasn't a big part. They sold that right away. They lost – they got rid of two big contracts. Adidas basically took over their NBA contract, mm-hmm. and they just let – they didn't renew the NFL contract. Mm-hmm. They really sort of changed their tune – Reebok's in the process of selling Rockport. There are those men's and even oh, yeah. women's oh, like, we boat know what shoes. They are. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> that's the, the sale is in process for that. So it's basically a, they want to buy a much slimmed down version of Reebok from what was purchased in 2005. Somewhat of a closer comparison in price, probably still a smaller price tag, even with apples to apples comparison. But um, yeah, it's not exactly the same company it was in 2005. Right. And where is Reebok at now? I mean, they, they you, as you said, they you know didn't do great for a while, but they're the, the, some people saw them sort of on the road to recovery. Right. They're turning around. I mean, they're turning themselves around as a very different brand from what they were back then. They've inked this partnership with CrossFit. And that seems to be giving them more sort of credibility in the broader market or more more interest from, you know, athletes. They have the, they sponsor the CrossFit games. They have stores right above certain CrossFit centers. Um, so that that partnerships they they re- really reworked themselves as a fitness brand mm-hmm. as opposed to Reebok back in the day was like made uh, basketball sneakers and tennis shoes. Now they just make a much more slim down number of products like fitness, aerobics, um, running shoes. So the cro- CrossFit's key to this. They've made some other some other smaller partnerships, and they, it seems to be gaining traction. I mean, they've lost like year over year sales have gone down since two thousand five. They are starting to see some sort of a turnaround. So they think you know they take take a private really like funnel money into that, open new stores, put marketing behind it. That's their plan. The potential buyers. So. My question is, what I want to know is, tell us about these potential buyers and tell us about the guy who's who's leading this group. So there was a bit of a misunderstanding in the newsroom earlier this week where Steve Russolillo here thought that Maureen Farrell had written a story about J-Lo. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Just a misunderstanding. What's the guy's name? His name is um, Joe Lowe, right. who's not uh, to be confused with J-Lo. <laughs> right, right. So, but tell us about him. So Jay Lowe, not excuse me, Joe Lowe, yes. <laughs> was um, he is uh, part of this Lowe family. There, um, his grandfather was a big um, entrepreneur. He made a, a fortune in um, liquor and mining. Um, he was born in China, moved to Thailand, built up this this empire really in Thailand and Malaysia. Joe himself was born in Malaysia, and he. Uh, had a very interesting history. I mean, he's he's lived all over the world. He was educated in England. He went to the Wharton School. But he's he's a very impressive deal maker. From a very even when he was back at uh, Wharton, he started putting together these deals, largely in Malaysia at first. He had this broad network of connections from all the schools he went to, from the people he socialized with, and eventually kind of built up connections with sovereign wealth funds around the world. So he has these hugely deep pockets to back his deals. So he he came up with some projects in Malaysia, some real estate investments. So he got big funds on board with him. They did very, very well on these projects, sold them two years later at big profits. So he's slowly, little by little, been inch- building up the size of the projects, 
he's been involved in consortiums really all over the world. He was part of the group that built, bought EMI's music publishing build, business. He was part of a group that bought the Park Lane Hotel here in New York for $660 million. So he's a, most people have never heard of him, but he's actually been involved in big deals, and this is his biggest deal yet, going after Reebok, this brand name that is huge in the United States. He's, he's done a little bit in the United States, but this is going to be his real big one. And it's, I mean, one of the first global deals of this magnitude that he's actually leading. I mean, he's his, for, his family's fortune that he invests on behalf of is $1.75 billion. So it's very large, but he, he needs these deep pockets behind him to finance it. What's the, the, the takeaway here from, from analysts? or what, What's there been the reaction to, to the news that you broke over the weekend? I mean, it's been very – the investors, at the very least, have been bidding up the stock. I think it's up. Last I looked, about 6 or 7 percent from when we broke Adidas the news. Stock there, Adidas, right? yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, so, yeah, Adidas' stock has been up. Investors seem to want them to sell. I mean, there's just been talk for a long time about them. There's been agitation from – investors recently to try to get them to streamline the company and to scale it scale it back. They, people weren't necessarily mentioning Reebok, but they thought they wanted to, them to be more focused. We've seen so many of these spinoffs or slim downs lately all across sure. corporations. So people seem positive. The, the real question seems to be from the analyst community whether or not they will. It's still an open question. We don't have that, many, that much more color on what Adidas' next steps are going to be. But what has the company said officially? No comment. No comment, huh? Hmm. So we'll be waiting to hear. They post earnings on November 5th. So at the very least, they're going to have to address something then. So, yeah, we'll be watching. We'll be waiting. Um, yeah, analysts have weighed in. A, a few, we've seen things like, don't be sentimental about Reebok. Just sell it. Just do it. Mm-hmm. Oh, <laughs> interesting. But we'll, we'll, see, we'll see where it goes from here. But I guess the question is, if, if they do think that they have Reebok on the right path now, Adidas does, would it be more prudent to hang on to it for a little bit longer and watch that play out and get a higher price? Right? Exactly. I mean, you bring up a good point, Eric. The, some people have said, you know, just just let it go, sell it. The price tag seems fair. Other people have said that. Like, we're just finally starting to see signs of a turnaround. Like you said, maybe just hang on to it. See what you can do with it. Just give it give it time to watch this turnaround play mm-hmm. out. Yeah. yeah. And, and well, it'll we, be interesting. Can we talk a little bit about Joe Lowe's... Uh, Nightlife and his, uh, his personality a bit. <laughs> All right. So he had beca- he had drawn headlines in the past and uh, from the likes of Page Six for um, his partying with Paris Hilton. He had wow. M- there are pictures with magnums of champagne. I don't even know if magnums the right call. Maybe like triple Very magnums large <laughs> yeah. that him and Paris Hilton had on cruises in Saint Tropez. Um, and Leonardo DiCaprio, he has a lot of he has a lot of sub- celebrity friends. And um, but I mean, one thing he really impressed upon me was that he said, you know, not that I don't party or go out anymore, but he's he's very young. He's thirty two years old. So he said, you know, he's really kind of changed his life. He said his grandfather gave him a talking to back in two thousand eight when he was still alive, and said, you know, these headlines are just diminishing your like credibility in the broader community. So he said he's really worked hard to overcome this perception of him as this like wild party boy and has really been changing his lifestyle. He had this uh, a cancer scare also in 2012. It wound up being a very serious infection. He was hospitalized for a long time um, at the MD Anderson Center in Texas. So he said that also really like woke him up. And 
After that, he made a big commitment through his foundation. He started a foundation out of his investment company um, to for philanthropy, and he actually just gave fifty million dollars to the cancer center um, mm-hmm. late last year to do some really interesting work with like IBM Watson. So yeah, he had this. The headlines were the party boy, um, Paris Hilton partying. Now he's uh, going after Reebok. A serious, he wants to be a serious deal maker. All right, nice. And, and philanthropist. Good, good. Yeah, a fascinating story and something that certainly we'll be watching closely. Thanks. Uh, and I think to, to conclude this podcast, we, we we have to talk a little bit about the uh, the San Francisco Giants. I mean, this is. Are we going to get an applause here? I was looking at Tori. Where's my. Enough. There we yeah. go. There we go. There we go. World Series, third yeah. time in the fa- past five years. I don't years. know why I'm gloating like I did anyway. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, Eric Holm, a huge, huge San Francisco Giants Rooting fan. hard. Uh, game three is tonight. Will be Friday yeah. night uh, in San Francisco. Uh, the series is tied 1 1 right now. And, you know, the game's 7 1 in the first, in game one. The Giants won. They lost 7 2, game two. So pretty even scores. Um, how are you feeling right now, Mr. Holmes? Well, you know what? Um, I'm a huge, huge I, I grew. I learned to read by reading the standings um, and asking my dad why the Giants were so bad. <laughs> uh, I've been a fan for so long that 2010 was such a catharsis. It was the first time that they won in my lifetime, obviously, and the first time they'd won as, as the San Francisco Giants. And then 2012 happened. That was improbable. That was crazy. I happened to be in the city then by sheer coincidence. Now 2014 is coming along, and you know what? I still want to win. <laughs> I still be want to greedy, win. man. I be know. Greedy. I know it's the rest okay. of the country. I understand why the rest of the country would be rooting for the Royals, but uh, I, I just can't let that happen. I, I there just, you go. No, yeah, I, yeah. I, <laughs> <laughs> you know, because. Uh, uh, it's been so – I know I know that we could find ourselves in the wilderness again, you know, next year. And then it will be another, you know, 50 years, 60 and, years know, before it, we win. It's such a strange thing because people are throwing around the word dynasty. And I right. think well-deserved in the sense that you make the World Series three times in five years. You are some sort of dynasty. Mm-hmm. Right. But you look at their regular season records – this is it does well, not you know, look they, like they were not the best team in the playoffs in 2010. They weren't the best team in the playoffs in 2012, and they were not the best team in the playoffs this time. Yeah, and Eric, I would argue that they might be better than the Royals, though. It's possible. Yeah, Both are, yeah. This is the first time that we've had an all wild card. But we've yeah. Uh, well, series, since right? mm, I don't know about that. Yeah. If yeah. it's not the first, it's one of the. There's right, only been right. one or two. But remember, there's now two wild card right, spots right, in each, true. each mm-hmm. league. So uh, and the Giants were the. Last, I think that both were the second wild card. Yeah, mm. I could be wrong on that, but I think that both were. And the both had wild less card. than ninety wins too. Yeah, right? yeah, amazing. Eric, we were talking about um, the fact that we the Giants seem like the the te- the kid in school who like skips out on the exam, doesn't really study, <laughs> and then ultimately like aces the class, and everyone's kind of annoyed at him or her. Yeah, <laughs> yeah no, that's, that's a good analogy. Yeah, that's a pretty good analogy. Yeah, but uh, but you know why they they still ace the test. Why? Because they know how to win. <laughs> no. So who, who's pitching tonight? Game it's time? Hudson. 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 Oh, yeah. and he's a great story, too. I mean, you oh, want to yeah. see this guy. This guy, is, I think he's 39 years old. Yeah. Wow. Wow. He's, he's played for a lot of teams and been to the playoffs a few times, but his teams have never gotten out of the first round. So uh, um, now they have – he said he signed with San Francisco in part so that, that uh, he would have one more shot. Mm-hmm. And here he is. So, you know, uh, Hunter Pence, uh, the, the star outfielder for the Giants, he – 
he, he one of the things he says is that he they're they're trying to win it for the guys who haven't been there before, including Tim Hudson. So yeah. uh, you know, Tim, if if uh, the Royals are a great story, but there are some great stories on the Giants as well. <laughs> Tim Hudson's one of them. Hunter Pence is another. Our our uh, vegetable garden. I, I was just going to mention the A's today. Third. Yeah, yeah. yeah, you can see the read about those crazy San Franciscans on the. Uh, <laughs> Did on you the see this front morning? page? This is, no, uh, I, t- I completely a, missed this. A vegetable garden, what, outside the, the outfield wall? Or is that for, no, what, it's where? in the stadium. Oh, it's in the stadium. I mean, yeah, but it's, it's not on the field. It's not on the field, <laughs> yeah. It's right, right beyond like, the right center field wall or, or something, something like that, yeah. Can yeah. I just say that is so San Francisco and <laughs> right, that's awesome. Right. Yeah, yeah. And they grow kale there, which is, <laughs> of course, of course, of course Hunter Pence's then. favorite thing to eat. Yeah. So, Eric Holm, your prediction here. We're at 1-1, so it's going 5 well, and first of all, last time I was on the podcast, I predicted Giants over the Nats in five, which did we – was it four or three? <laughs> <laughs> I, was, I was far too pessimistic. You're, the giant, you're a Giants fan. Yeah, I was far <laughs> too pessimistic. But uh, I got to go Giants in seven. Giants in seven. Nice. Yeah. So it's going to go the distance. Yeah, I think it will. Wow. I think it will. Yeah. Uh, Madison Bumgarner is awesome. Um, <laughs> but the other pitching matchups, they match up very well. So uh, the, the Royals do. So uh, we'll see. And their bullpen is great. Ours uh, has been good until, except for this Hunter Strickland kid, and we'll see. Strickland, we'll yeah. See. He's a, uh, anyway. Yeah. No comment. You heard it here first, folks. Giants in seven. That's what Eric Holmes says. Uh, and I think on that, we'll leave it there. This has been the Money Beat Week podcast with Maureen Farrell and Eric Holmes. I'm Steve Rusolillo. Thanks so much for joining us. We help farmers make the best use of their land, which means healthier crops, higher yields, and less harvesting hours, which is good news for a growing population and good news for the environment. BASF, The Chemical Company.